it's back to the old page model of the internet. I don't really stream. I kind of batch up and then send a large quantity of data at once. And it's like, Brian is currently buffering. Yes. <laughs> buffer. Got a lot of buffers. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Model View Conversation, America's premier tech education podcast. My name is Ben Golke. And I'm Brian Gates. Please be sure to check out our website at nbc.fm for an archive of our shows where you can listen right on the page, access the show notes, and find out how to subscribe. We'd also love to hear your feedback, which you can provide by rating and reviewing us on iTunes or tweeting us at MVC Podcast. How are you doing this week, Ben? Pretty good. How are you doing, Brian? Couldn't complain. Well, could complain, but they'd be false and... Oh, let's start. Right. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's perfect. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, I I think maybe it would be a good idea to kind of catch up a little bit before we get started on our topic today. Um, So what's what's been going on with you uh, regarding the things that we may have mentioned in a previous episode around certain uh, web things? Oh, man. To put you on the spot. Wow. We're launching into the habit review episode when you know that I have not been good with my habits. Uh, Well, but see, it's important. It's important to both, uh, you know, show our successes and our failures to our listeners. Right. right? None of us are perfect. We're all human. Oh, man. This is where I wish we had the soundboard already because we need the little shame bell from Game of Thrones (laughs) playing. As I review my lack of progress in, in the goals, I've, I've been uh, writing some stuff. I have been writing oh, some stuff, but I have not put it out into the world for anyone to see, which right. shame. I mean, that's part shame. of it. It's true. To be fair, I also haven't gotten very far with my goals. Okay, my let's review. What, of... what were your goals? What were you supposed so, to do? So mine was one piece of educational content per week. Okay. Um, I did... So I did. I had a little backtrack because my website needed to be, I, I in order to get the the code blocks to look correct, to me anyway. Um, I needed to do a bunch of stuff with WordPress and get that working, and I ended up having to connect support, and it was a whole big thing. So I I did a pretty uh, large scale overhaul of the tutorial section of the site. No new content went up, but it looks better now. It it. It, I think it reads better. The little code blocks are now syntax highlighted and all that good stuff. So I improved the quality of the ones I had. I just haven't created any new ones yet. I do have one um, kind of uh, in the, not in the can. What am I trying to say? In like the hopper would be the, yeah, the stage the, before the, the can. There we go. I don't in know physically hopper, so. what either of those things are supposed to mean, but that's just things people say. Right. <laughs> but I do have one kind of in the hopper. Um, to post uh it's a short ios uh to the ones i've had so far are swift and to see this one's actually a little um ios tutorial uh so it's it's ready to go and i actually already have some um uh even some slides and and also a com- a, both a starter and a completed project um for xcode so it's probably you know half done just from the stuff that i already completed um so so i made progress but it, again same kind of thing right it, stuff is in the works yeah. it's just not public Just yet not the same is like half of the battle right what do you think we've been doing wrong there that we haven't gotten all the way to our goals were the goals too uh, too grandiose were we asking too, too much for ourselves uh well I, no yeah i agree <laughs> i don't think so i was trying to go us an out it was completely <laughs> nope that's not the reason at all 
Yeah, no, I don't. I don't think they were too lofty. I think it's just that uh, you know you gotta you gotta make the time. It's not it's not finding the time. It's making. It is the time making the time. The time is the same. It's what you make of it. Um, and what are we doing with the time? Otherwise, is what gets me because as I sort of mentally review my week, it's not like I have a exhaustive diary of what I'm doing every hour. But as I think, even at the end of every day, as I look back, I feel like there's not time that I'm just sitting still looking at a tv not trying to accomplish something yeah it does feel like there's certainly lots of activities happening it's just like where where what did i do and where did it all go <laughs> yeah to me for me so I, i've been really excited about um my recent foray into live streaming um with twitch um but i i it was kind of my first literally the first time i had ever streamed before so uh i didn't really know what i was doing and i still don't <laughs> figuring it out which is it's a fun challenge to be able to kind of dig into some of this this whole like you were saying i was showing you before we got on the podcast it's like a whole world of stuff of of twitch and and all the software and i the love finding and... whole universes that were previously unknown to me and yeah this stuff. It's, it's really cool um so yeah so i've been kind of distracted with that but uh it's good um it's just not uh the the tutorial post that i wanted to make I feel a little bit the same. I've been working within the space that we talked about before of uh, educational content. For me, it's been more uh, consumption over the past few weeks. I've sort of, over Christmas, that was a Christmas gift to myself. I fell in with the, the front-end web development Canadian mafia, as I, <laughs> as only I call them. It's basically yes. there's two guys, Wes Boss does a bunch of tutorials, and then uh, Adam Wathan uh, is an, another podcaster, actually, who I, I discovered through his uh full stack radio and um, they both put out good content and i I bought a couple of things and I've been going through and uh, bringing myself up to date in the latest and greatest in react and GraphQL, and also um, Adam Wathan has this refactoring UI project which does uh, interesting uh, has a lot of interesting advice for you know how to make things look good and how to go through the process of starting with a blank sheet and coming coming up with a good design. And while I think I've been learning a lot, I haven't been turning around in teaching any of it. So that's the next step, I think. Oh, and also um, getting back into my Ruby roots a little bit, there was a program from the guys at ThoughtBot, which is a big Ruby consultancy, who um, had early experience in hiring bootcamp grads back in like, 2012 or 2013 they started wow, hiring. Yeah, early. very early because they're based in boston and so they had um, contact with some of the very first people to enter the space and realized as we would tell people that when you get out of a boot camp you're ready to be a productive junior which is different from being a full-on you know independent software developer and through their experience in onboarding people and having kind of an apprenticeship model they realized that there was probably a market for that uh, more broadly, and put together some educational content to level people up in Ruby and Rails, and then decided just uh, late last year that there really was not enough of a market to make their continued involvement in it make sense. And so they just uh, opened everything up. It had been a subscription model, and they announced in um, October or November that it was going to be free for everybody. And so I've been taking a look at some of that stuff, less to learn more Ruby than to see how do these people who know a lot of Ruby um, teach this stuff. And it, uh, 
it turns out the the big lesson from that is even though Ruby I think has a, a uh, reputation I guess as being a kind of staid language at this point it doesn't have the breakneck turnover and churn that something right. like JavaScript or or even Swift does that things can still go stale and like, here it is January 2019 and I'm looking at stuff that was put out probably late 2017 and that's just not how things are done anymore <laughs> and so the videos right. are completely obsolete and and so dealing with that again so I'm learning a lot I'm uh, going to be I think in better shape to present the stuff that I've learned in, in my own manner fairly soon but it's been more of a a taking in and a sending out period for the past month. Right. I mean, it's useful when you're trying to create educational resources. It's useful to look at, uh, you know, sort of the meta process of what other people are doing and how they're presenting things so that you can make sure that you're presenting things in a way that, you know, makes sense and that people will be able to consume and kind of internalize and understand. So I think there's nothing wrong with doing some research, as it were. And it's useful, especially because in education, as in some other things that I think we'll get into I have the sense that even though I've been doing it for a while, maybe I'm just not very good compared to people who are, you know, like big name, very successful figures. And so I, I wanted to look at and find out, do I really know how to do this at all compared to the leaders in the field? How wonderfully apropos of our topic today. Thank you. <laughs> so to, just to, to slide perfectly into the next topic through that wonderful segue that Brian just provided. Uh, today's topic is all about imposter syndrome. So for those of you in the audience that have maybe never heard of this, you, if you've been learning uh, development or really kind of taking on any large tasks like that, you probably have experienced this, even maybe you don't know what it's called. Basically, imposter syndrome is the idea that you have some training or you have some skill in a, in a thing, but you're relatively new to it. Um, and you then surround yourself with other people who you who either literally are, or at least you perceive to be you know, much, much more skilled and knowledgeable about that topic than you. Um, and you kind of end up with this, this strange internalized kind of fear that I'm here, I'm doing the job, but at any moment, someone's going to come tap me on my shoulder and say, we've found you, we've, we, you, you scoundrel, you have somehow managed to get into this organization and work here or do this work even though you actually know nothing about this and are, and are terrible at it and you are instantly fired, right? This idea that, that they're going to find you and they're going to, they're going to um, realize what you really are, which is someone who doesn't know what they're doing. The first time you heard the term imposter syndrome, you thought, I, I don't know what that is. Does everybody else? I bet everybody else knows and I'm the only one who doesn't know. Should I even be here? <laughs> That's imposter syndrome. So if you felt yeah. that way, you have it. You can even have imposter syndrome about imposter syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. So th that's the idea basically is that you are just not fit to be there and to do that work. In many cases, in probably most cases, that's not true, right? Especially if you've gone through a boot camp or a CS program or you've, you've done a bunch of training on your own and you can build applications if we're talking about developers here. You do deserve to be there. You, you, are, you have skill, you have knowledge, you have a talent to be able to get this work done. Um, but it can feel very overwhelming, and particularly if you are mostly surrounded by people who are you know, senior to you, either intermediate people or, or, or senior developers. It can feel very much like 
you're the greenhorn and you don't know anything about anything um, and you're always making mistakes and you know you don't belong there so what we kind of wanted to do today was just talk about that topic and and in particular um, share some stories about the ways that we've encountered it both when we were juniors and also even today I mean it's something that might be surprising to the audience is that even as senior developers we get this all the time we're still you know there's still areas where we don't feel as confident and it's easy for this kind of thinking to kind of sneak up on you. And I think our industry especially is susceptible to this because we don't have any of the milestones where the world announces to you that you know what you're doing. There's the old joke, uh, what do you call the person who graduates last in their class in medical school? Doctor. Right. (laughs) Because if you make it through, you know, you, you get the degree, then that's the certification. That's the world saying, you know how to do this job. And that is really lacking in what we do. And in general, I'm in favor of that lack because the credentialing can't keep up with the rate of change. But one of the drawbacks of that is it's very difficult to have something to point to to say, I know what I'm doing because the governing body has has said that I know what I'm doing. Yeah, it's not like uh, you're, you know, a civil engineer or, or one of those kinds of maybe other engineering fields where there are, like you said, governing bodies who kind of anoint people as you've taken this test and you've proven in front of this committee that you know what you're doing. So therefore, we're going to give you this badge and then you can sort of, you know, show this to anyone who wants to to know and kind of proof that I know what I'm doing. We don't have that. We potentially learned how to code uh, in our spare time, in the evenings, in our bedroom, on our computer, right? There's no, there's no um, kind of official group that is. There's that is, no anointing going on there. No, no. Or anointing if there at is, all. it's not something we want to get into on the show. So, uh, yeah. So th- there's just there's there's not that kind of official recognition, um, and as a consequence, it doesn't. Even if you do finish a computer science degree, or you go through a boot camp. Or you finish all of the stuff that's on Free Code Camp, which is like fifteen hundred hours right. worth of learning. Even if you do that, right? You it just you're like I'm done. I finished the boot camp. You know, when we were teaching, we even had sort of a graduation where we kind of wanted to acknowledge the um, the the work, the hard work that was done in the class, and we made sort of a little ceremony out of it and, and all that kind of thing. But it's not that official and even a computer science graduation from your university it's like okay i'm wearing a gown and i get a piece of paper and i shake the hand of the president or whatever but like it's just it's it's not the same because you're going to leave that situation and then you're going to try and get a job and that person's not going to have been there for any of that right so it's going to all you're going to have basically is your resume so there's just not that much um there's not there's there's no real automatic way to kind of prove that you are who you say you are and that you have the skill. So you, we have to deal with that. That's the reality of this industry is is kind of understanding that that is the case. So maybe we could start with, Brian, how did you encounter this? You know, I, I know you've, you've had a, certainly a non-traditional way of getting into this field. So how did you deal with kind of that, um, particularly that kind of lack of official, I guess, gate you know uh, gate that you got to walk through or or milestone that you got to achieve well looking back i learned exactly the way that you described it was in evenings and weekends at first i found some websites that would explain some things about ruby at least as far as professional development i would i had some classes when i was a kid and even in 
college and graduate school, but it wasn't anything that I felt like I wanted to pursue as a career while I was doing that stuff. And languages like, you know, basic and Fortran that are not really hot. No, <laughs> Dating myself I a little bit there, but the, the yeah. Fortran job market is not what it was in the late seventies. Um, so I, I had some exposure to some stuff, but nothing at all that made me feel like I was uh, ready to be a professional programmer. And then when I discovered Ruby, I, it was completely self-taught because at the time there was no other way to do it. I mean, no one else was, was teaching Ruby and I really didn't want to go back to school again anyway. And I think that saving grace for me was that learning Ruby in the mid 2000s, it was at least possible well, the way I did it was to kind of eke out a living on various freelancer websites where you could just, you could say, I know how to do this and kind of put up your little profile. Here are my skills. And then because just a lot of people wanted a lot of stuff built, some of them would decide, yes, I'll hire this person. He's in America and he seems to understand written English. And so... Probably he also knows software. And so I could just do that. But uh, I tended to gravitate towards contracts that were single person. I was not part of a team until uh, fairly late in doing that. And so I always had hanging over my head the idea that while I had absorbed everything I could out of the tutorials and books and stuff, maybe there was some kind of insider, like, in the guild or on the job knowledge that I had never had access to, maybe I was doing something or some number of things really wrong that I just didn't know were mistakes. So I think the it's it's doubly um, kind of a problem when you both get no formal training and you also are in that freelance style where it's just one person and you don't really have other people that you can bounce ideas off of or other people's code that you can look at to compare and say, oh, this is clearly better than mine <laughs> the style is better or this approach is better i'm going to then adapt my own style to kind of fold some of these techniques in if you're by yourself you just don't have that opportunity to do that so it's even harder to kind of gauge do i know what i'm doing or am i actually just you know a fraud and i did try to look at other people's code but the only things that i knew to look at were the biggest name projects around because those were what i knew about and the rails code base itself was incomparably vastly more uh, sophisticated than anything I was capable of. And so comparing my three to six months experience with this stuff to people who had been writing PHP for eight to 10 years and then had switched over to create this enormously successful framework was not a great comparison, either in terms of accuracy or for my ego. You're like, I just built an Estes rocket. Look how cool this is. It's like two feet tall. Yes. And then you're like, and here's the Saturn V that's, <laughs> next that, to it. That's like, good too. Uh, <laughs> that's a big, right. That's a big rocket. Like you just, there's no, <laughs> you just have no ability to scale that in any way that, you know, scale it, scale yours up or scale theirs down so that you can actually glean anything useful out of something like reading the actual Rails code base. That's just, it's just infinitely more complicated. I, I can see how that would be not that helpful. Um, and I, I think in the situation that you were in where it's, you know, early days, basically for the, for that particular niche of programming, right? Ruby, Rails, that kind of thing. There's just not a lot to compare it to at all. Like you said, there's, it's not like people had, you know, hundreds and hundreds of GitHub um, repos out there that were like little projects that they worked on that you can go, okay, this is a different thing, but it's at least comparable in size. And I can kind of 
do a rough apples to apples comparison. There were probably more out there than I appreciated at the time. I just didn't know how to find them. And I thought, well, I can, uh, I have the Rails code base to look at. I have some of the big gems, which are the, the Ruby packages to look at. And wow, that stuff is really complicated. I'm not as yeah. good as these people. Which there's another problem. You may not even know how to look up. Yeah other people's stuff right you may as a junior you may just not know kind of the scope of the community and where you can go to find these kinds of things so even if they are available you may or may not be able to actually use them for purposes of comparison um how would you compare that experience to the kinds of imposter syndrome feelings that you get now as a senior now i think like with every other negative feeling that i experience in this point in my life uh, now it's easier to deal with because it's so familiar. <laughs> because <laughs> any negative feeling, oh, this, yes, I've I've been dealing with this issue for several decades right. now, and you kind of know I can. Uh, it's like being in a turbulent airline flight for your thirtieth time as opposed to the first time. It's like, oh, this is unpleasant and nauseating, and it will end soon. As opposed to, I, are we all going to die right now? <laughs> Which is the, the yeah. more the first time. It's true. So that's the, I think the biggest change is the familiarity. Uh, you wish it would go away at some point. It, in my experience, it doesn't. And the other big change is I really can date my career to pre-Iron Yard and post-Iron Yard. And the reason for that is that the Iron Yard was my first exposure to a large group of people who were clearly capable of what they were doing, uh, to whom I could compare myself and who would sort of invite comparison, right? You could share code and what you were teaching and how you were teaching it and what you thought about different concepts. And people were very receptive to those conversations. And I felt like I was among peers and I was accepted as a mm -hmm. peer, which had really yeah. never happened before. Yeah, I would, I would say my experience probably is pretty similar. I, I, I liked your, your, you know, familiarity um, point there. I think that's, that's very well made. And, and, and I would say it's probably, true for me too like that's that's the difference between me 10 years ago and me now is that if i do experience i mean even like the stuff i was just talking about a minute ago about with twitch right i don't know what i'm doing i'm not a streamer i don't i don't know how that works there's 12 year old kids who are you know whizzing around on all the software and and making multi-camera setups and going going crazy right and i don't barely know how to hit the record button right. <laughs> but, but by comparison but uh but i guess the difference is is that maybe before i was perhaps more likely to let those feelings kind of stymie my efforts. Um, whereas now I take when I, I mean, in, not in every case, certainly, but in, but in some cases I take some of the imposter type syndrome feelings as almost like a challenge accepted. Like I, you know, yeah, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to figure this out. Like this is, this is now a kind of a personal goal for me to, to get rid of this feeling by not just, pushing it down and ignoring it, but by using it as fuel to try and get rid of it the natural way, which is to become knowledgeable about the thing that I think that I'm not. Um, and so it, it helps to kind of hopefully, and you know, not in every case, but in, 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 in some cases anyway, motivate me to do better, you know, and, and, and be better at that thing so that that just kind of goes away. I also think that your Iron Yard thing was, you know, a good point and something that I definitely experienced too. Um, I really did feel uh, it, it was both 
because I had not taught before, it was it was both terrifying to to do to the idea to do that, right? I basically went in, interviewed, got the job, and then I'm even at the campus, and I had a few weeks to get started with building my curriculum before I actually started teaching. My class didn't start for a few weeks, so I had some time to just sort of sit and watch you guys teach and watch this, you interact with the students and work on my curriculum and stuff. And it was at it was at at once both completely terrifying that like in a few weeks i'm going to be doing the exact same thing i'm going to be up in front of a bunch of people right and i'm going to be teaching them stuff and they're going to be looking at me and 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 thinking this this is the expert we're we're sitting here and we're listening to this expert teach us these things and that was terrifying but it was also really exciting and exhilarating that they had you know given me that ability you know that responsibility to do that um and it was kind of a big um uh, boost of confidence that like the company believed enough in me to give me that responsibility and and trust that I would that I would be a good steward to those to those students um, and so it was like kind of imposter syndrome but then also like a big confidence boost which was a very strange thing that I had never experienced before in my career either and I'll bet the the unusual onboarding process that you had which I shared to some extent because I mm-hmm. My first experience being in an Iron Yard classroom was I was a TA for our friend David, whose class they decided to launch first. And so I got to spend 12 or 13 weeks uh, in the back of the room, tying up the loose ends of the end of my freelancing career while watching David teach and join in sometimes, you know, pepper with questions when I felt like some students looked stumped but were uh, unwilling to ask anything answer student questions during lab time and that sort of stuff. And that gave a real demystification to the process. Instead of hearing at some day, you're going to need to walk into a room and begin this process of teaching software to people who haven't done it before, which sounds very mysterious. And oh my gosh, how am I possibly going to do that? To be able to observe it happening for a while uh, combines, like you said, the fear of how is this possible with Oh well, that guy's doing it. I can I can probably do something like that, right. and I think that applies equally as well to software development uh, on some levels. If you can get in and you know, sit with somebody, even if it's somebody who's been doing it longer and is more sophisticated than you are at that point in time, uh, you'll get to see. I think crucially, you'll get to see the other person screw up once in a while, which makes you feel better, and also uh, you'll be able to contribute a little bit at a time and gradually feel like, okay, yeah, I I can do some of this. I I got what's going on here. Yeah. I think observation is probably the most important thing you can do first as a, as a new developer, Uh, you know, observing other developers doing their work, you know, in their natural habitat. Um, And then, uh, and then mimicry, I think is the next thing that is super useful. I mean, that's what I did in my classroom. I had students, in some cases, literally copy the text that I was putting on the screen, right? You, there's something, there's value that you can get out of just literally being a stenographer and just copying down because it's making your fingers move and you're getting used to the kind of the feeling of being in front of the keyboard and getting your ideas on, on, you know, virtual paper in the editor. Um, And you can, that process allows you to build muscle memory and to also, um, you know, start to, extrapolate other avenues that you could go down even if you are following me you could say oh well i could do it this way and i could i could change this and i could make you start to kind of make your own um changes and you start to develop your own style and whether you're doing that in a classroom or you're doing that as part of a team 
as a junior developer, um, you know, in a job, either way, it's, it's super useful to help, you know, boost your confidence. Like you said, also that whole human part of, no, they screwed it up a couple of times and like that, they're not actually, you know, like Gandalf, they're a regular person and they make mistakes and it's, and that's normal even for them at a senior level. So clearly that's also totally normal for me. And I think that helps to start to break down this, this thing, this wall that you've put up of, I'm here, they're way over there. I'm never going to get there. I'm just a nobody who doesn't know anything. And you were talking about the value of simply typing out what someone else is doing. And I, I would put that under the general heading of getting used to things. You know, you get used to the idea that certain words and constructs come up a lot and you get used to the idea that you need to reach for those braces keys over at the end of your keyboard that you never had to use before. And you get used to seeing the little red squiggle, which means you did something wrong. And you get used to getting stuck and not knowing what to do for a while and realize that that's not the end of the world and that's a normal part of things. And I think with really any problem in software or, or out that I've had to deal with repeatedly, the biggest thing is just getting acclimated to it, that this is something that happens. And especially with software that uh, the feeling that initially you take as a, a danger sign, you know, a sign that you have to flee is a normal part of stuff. Yeah. And it isn't just a matter of software development. That's kind of everything, right? I mean, when you, if you came from a world of employment where you were in the service industry or you were basically just in any industry that is demonstrably different from kind of the programming world where you spend a lot of time sort of sitting by yourself or with a few other people sort of quietly, quietly contemplating stuff, that's just a very different environment than you might be used to. And it would be, I could see easily how that could be very disconcerting to provide kind of an analogy. I am a scuba diver and when I probably... Hmm. The first easy, the first five, eight times I went scuba diving, you know, not like in the pool that we did in the training, but like real full blown in the ocean, I'm jumping off this boat right. and I'm going to go underwater for like 40 That's minutes be terrifying. and then I'm going to come back to the surface and I'm not going to die like that. The, the, just wrapping your head around that idea is so weird and you have all this stuff on and you're underwater and there's all this cool stuff to look at but then also like you can move in directions that you can't you don't typically move on the surface right i can move up and down i can be upside down i can you know there's just the normal basically underwater can is very different from the normal on the surface and if you don't you know i'm not a fish right so i'm not used to that it's not my in my natural environment and so it was very i i definitely had in the first few times there'd be I'd be both like super excited to be there, and then every once in a while I go, "Holy crap, I'm underwater! <laughs> <laughs> I have all this stuff on, right. and like, yeah, I can breathe because there's a tank, but like, what happens what if something happens, goes yeah. wrong? And then, and then I start to get like in my head, and then, it, and then, like you said, that immediate need to get away from this situation kind of cr creeps into my head, and I'm like, I want to go back to the surface, I want to be done, get get all this gear off of me, but you have to just kind of take a breath and and realize that you're totally fine and that it's that the environment is you are in fact fine and safe and everything and you can you can adapt to this new environment and i and obviously that's a different scenario than like getting a job as a developer but kind but of there are, similarities. And, you know, there are similarities there it's, it's it's the more foreign this environment is to you based on your previous experience the more likely you're probably going to end up with those feelings of i better get out of here and and like you said if just sitting down and like and even just you know mimicking someone else or whatever it it gets you used to oh 
I come in, I sit at my desk, I do, I sit in front of my computer, I think, I, I, I talk, and I kind of bounce ideas off people, and, and this is my job. This is what I do now. Yeah, I used to have a similar feeling. Uh, I was a cross-country runner in high school, which was several decades and multiple scores of pounds ago in my life. And we would have that feeling every day. You'd get out and it would be a group of eight or ten of us. And you'd see us going down on the sidewalk and just grumbling and kind of swearing a lot for a block or two. Because when you begin to run, even when you're a kid, it's unpleasant. It's uncomfortable and it's sweaty and hard breathing and a little bit of nausea. And then after a couple of minutes, that just goes away. And the first couple of times you do it, you think, oh my gosh, this is a signal that I'm about to have, to have a heart attack. And so I should lie down and wait for medical assistance. And then over time you realize, no, that's just, that's the startup process. That's normal. And you just wait for that to be over and then it'll be fine. And it sounds like super diving is the same way that you get under the water. You have that little grip of, oh no, my life is dependent on a tube. What if something happens to the tube? And then that goes away and you're fine. And software, the same way. You sit down at the keyboard and you'll have those moments from time to time of, oh, I was sure this was going to work and it doesn't. And, uh, and, and people are looking at me and, yeah. and I'm, and I'm going to, they're going to say, you're gone. Like right, you, right. you made the mistake. You've, you've ruined the build. You're out of here. Right. That's, but that's not, I mean, I guess it could happen, but usually, <laughs> but it it's very, very, it's very, very unlikely. Yeah. And going along with that, the, the worry that you're going to do something and it's going to um, cost you a job or your career or something. I, I was really struck a few years ago. I was fortunate to go to a great little meetup talk and the title was something along the lines of how I cost my company a hundred thousand dollars in an evening oh my god yeah and it, it was somebody who had made a mistake in deploying stuff and ended up running up server costs they had a, a job that was just on speed dial or something and um, and that the fallout from that was a discussion around what the mistake was and well let's find out how we can make sure that doesn't happen again. And that was really kind of eye-opening because I hadn't been in a job where someone had run into that difficulty. And it was really educational to find out that that's how at least some enlightened shops that were financially in a position to, to support that could say, this is not the end of the world. You did make a mistake and it's a serious mistake, but it's a one-time mistake and we can learn from it and we can go forward. Yeah, one of my dad's, I think, I think it was a job fairly early in his career. He was like on his, I don't know, second day or something, and he was behind the server rack doing something, and he stepped on a power supply or something and turned off like an entire wall full of computers. <laughs> Oops. You know, and then and then he like comes around from behind and and he's like, people obviously people are like running in. Well, like, oh no, what's right, happened? Right. And he's like, hi, I'm new here. <laughs> you know, I mean. But it, it, it happens. It, you make mistakes and you have to just kind of deal with it and move on. And and if, you know, real harm is caused, then that's the thing you have to take responsibility for. But but it's not like, well, for one thing, you're going to make mistakes, sure. bottom line. Sure. It's, it's going to happen. Get used to that idea. Um, and, and like Brian just said, if, if as long as you're at a place that has, um, you know, basically empathy for the human condition, they're not going to fire you because you made a mistake. So kind of go to kind of go along with that, um, I think it is very possible and, and even easy to have the environmental conditions that you work in um, can can create scenarios where either this this problem, this imposter syndrome thing 
can either be worse or it can be better. You know, it can be, it can be worsened by the environment or it can be lessened by the environment you're in. So have you, have you, um, had, do you have examples from your career where either you feel like maybe with hindsight, you you realize, Oh, these feelings I was having were actually made worse by, by this environment or they were made better. Oh, absolutely. For the entire pre iron yard portion of my career, I, I know now that I made things much harder on myself than they needed to be by isolating myself because I was probably a lot of that was, I was afraid of being found out. Uh, when, if anything, I should run towards that fear because if I'm going to be found out as anything, I'm going to be found out as somebody who doesn't know a couple things yet, more than a couple things, and I'll find that out by somebody explaining to me. You know, there's a, the aphorism now that uh, the, the fastest way to learn something is to uh, make a mistake on the internet, right? Because then ev everyone in the world will descend on you to say, no, 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 it should be like this over here. And by not being on the internet or going to meetup groups or being in contact with other people, I denied myself that opportunity to grow. So that's, that's the big thing. And what I'm doing uh, more recently is to be more open to, um, to presenting my work to coworkers who I respect and who know more than I do and just badger them for, um, for their evaluations of what I'm doing and not like waiting around for formal evaluations from managers and stuff, which could probably be its own episode, but talking to other developers who I know know what they're doing and say basically, do you think I know what I'm doing with respect to this bit of code right here? Right. Yeah, getting the feedback and critique of your fellow developers on the craft of building software, I think is probably the most important thing that you can do to, to improve this situation with imposter syndrome is to uh, to recognize that you don't know, obviously you don't know everything and, and there's lots to learn and people, all kinds of people have all different kinds of things they can contribute to your knowledge and skill set. Um, so soliciting that feedback and that advice is good. Even like Brian said, if there's no formal sort of mechanism within the company to do that, it doesn't cost anything, right, for you to just go send a message to your colleague or walk over to their desk or send them an email and say, Hey, could you take a look at this code that I wrote, or could you, you know, check this out for me? I'm having some trouble with this algorithm, or whatever, um, and and get them to help you improve it. Because even if even if there's advice that they give you that you don't end up taking, the advice is still valuable on its own. I mean, it might it, even if you don't necessarily go down the exact route that they suggest, it still might spark things for you that you didn't understand, or that or a new direction that you didn't think to go. Um, so there's all kinds of, you know, advantages there to, um, to getting that kind of advice to kind of pivot from that, um, related to what you were saying about kind of lack of formal, um, acknowledgement or advancement markers, right? This idea that companies may or may not, I found most companies are pretty terrible at this, um, at least in the software world of kind of creating these, these gates or these, uh, these hurdles that you can jump over to, uh, to kind of advance in your career and advance within the company, a lot of times those things just don't exist. Um, or if they do exist, they're kind of sloppily uh, doled out. Like they're, they're not explained or they're, or like we have this process, but we don't, in practice, we don't actually really follow it that much. Um, I'm assuming you've probably been in a scenario where that's, <laughs> or that's been the case where you were like, oh, this thing, this milestone happened and there was like no acknowledgement of it at all. Um <laughs> So uh, what, 
it, it's definitely true that especially for juniors that can make this process worse where you feel like I'm standing here and I'm doing all this work and then crickets, right? I'm, I'm getting nothing from anyone regarding like how I'm doing or any kind of, um, you know, whether they're attaboys or, or, you know, Hey, it's a critique of this thing. You should be doing better. What can juniors do to try to either maybe engage with that process? If it does exist, kind of get the company to be a little more, you know, to actually do what they say they're going to do or, at least build a little one for themselves that they can maybe um, use to, to try and advance that? That's a, a great question and a great opportunity for me to uh, give hypocritical advice that I really ought to follow myself. <laughs> That's what this whole podcast is about, right? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. We, this is just, it's therapy for us, ladies and gentlemen. We, we tell each other things and then we hope that during the week we'll say to ourselves, you know, I was right on, uh... on the podcast <laughs> When I said this, and Boy, I should that, do this myself. That that Brian guy, I should really listen to that podcast more. Yeah. <laughs> but the the thing I don't do that I would counsel all of you and I to do is to uh, to just force that process. To as soon as you're hired, say, "All right, thank you very much, and I look forward to working here." And let's schedule a time to talk about the review cycle and uh, what are particular things that I should do to be evaluated well and what are things that are like, common problems that uh, I should avoid and how can we have a, re a little informal review before the actual review to catch problems before they start. And I think basically nobody does that through a combination of not being aware of that and I think most people let the review cycle kind of sneak up on them and then they realize, oh my gosh, I've been here three or six months or a year and this is something that I'm going to have to, to go into. I wonder what they're going to tell me. Uh, I wonder what they care about here. And there's really no need to get yourself into that kind of situation if, if you just uh, say it up front. And then, then I think the other reason that people avoid it and certainly the reason I avoid it is uh, the same imposter syndrome, fear of being found out and wanting to delay that as long as possible, which really doesn't make any kind of sense. You know, you're going to have the review one way or another eventually. People are at least going to have their opinions of your work uh, one way or the other. And it's only to your benefit to find out what those opinions are and, and find out what you can do to improve them. Yeah, I, I think that fear of not wanting to be found out or that fear of um, being told that basically you're bad at your job, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's wh yeah. whether that's warranted or not. I mean, I, I certainly hope that my employers, both current and past, wouldn't be like, "Boy, that guy Ben was terrible." Um, <laughs> I, I would hope that their opinion of me would be relatively positive, and I think it probably is. Um, but and even more than that, I mean, being told that you're terrible is awful. But even being told that you're mediocre for, I, I would expect everybody listening to the podcast, you feel like, "Oh, that that stings." I don't want to be average. Yeah, being told that you're average is. I guess maybe potentially even worse. Yeah, <laughs> because you're like, well, you're you know, you're not exceptionally bad, but you're also just sort of meh. Um, so, like that line yeah, from uh, Pirates of the Caribbean: "You're the worst pirate I've ever heard of, but you have heard of me." Right. See, <laughs> all publicity is good publicity. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so that's being non-exceptional, right? I guess unexcep unexceptional um, is 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 not great. Um, and, and if you, and in particular, if you're working in an information vacuum where you don't have any clue, 
right, what they value and what they don't, the the fear that you might be labeled as either bad or mediocre is even higher, right? Because you're just like, I don't even know what they want. So I feel like I'm doing a good job, but I could be doing a good job at all of the wrong things. And then and then it turns out they actually wanted me doing all the other things that I didn't even know existed. And then now I'm being, you know, their perception of me is either bad or at best maybe mediocre. Um, so like you were saying, this this information asymmetry where where they have all the information needed to make an assessment um and then they are not sharing that with anyone ever um is not good because you're already kind of going into this negotiation or this this discussion these review things at a disadvantage because they're assessing you right and and just kind of like in, like we've said previous about interviews I think the common perception is that interviews are very one-sided, right? It's like the company is interviewing you to, to hire you and therefore they have all of the leverage and all they hold all the cards and they have all of the influence and power and you have none. And what we've been trying to say is like, yes, it is true that it is an, it is an unbalanced situation, but you, but you can, you can be smart about trying to up your influence and your control a little bit so that um, you don't feel powerless in that scenario. And I think the same thing is true here when we're talking about assessment and review and performance, um, you know, a performance critique is that in theory, <laughs> I mean, certainly this should be the case. It depends, obviously depends on your, the people involved, but I have a couple of times been told in, in, in performance reviews that, that the company wanted my feedback on their performance. doesn't happen very often, but that does occasionally happen. Um, and so I think it's something that you can do is you can, to empower yourself, you can find out what they want and what they need. Like you were saying, ask immediately, why not ask them the very first day of your job, right? How do you assess good workers? What, what are the criteria that you consider as a company to be making for a model employee at this organization? I would find if I was an employer, I'd find that to be a very insightful and very useful question to be asked. Mm -hmm. Um, and it reflects may, well on the person asking it too. Yeah, they may or may not have a good answer for you, <laughs> because they just may never have thought about it very deeply. But um, at least asking it, like you said, it shows professionalism and stuff like that. So there's that. And then going into that review, you'll be much more, you know, better armed to kind of defend yourself and to and to explain your choices and and that kind of thing. Um, and then also you have that opportunity to provide them with feedback on, you know. I've been here six months and like, I haven't really gotten any kind of feedback, you know, ongoing feedback from my bosses and whoever about my performance. I don't really feel like, um, like my, my efforts are being even acknowledged. And that is something that I think the company could work on to do better is obviously more informed employees make better employees. Right. So, uh, it's an opportunity to, to just like with interviews, kind of try anyway to sort of level that playing field a little bit so that the information information asymmetry isn't quite so asymmetrical. Yeah, you get the greater degree of symmetry there, and you can also benefit, I think, from the, uh, the psychological truth that an, an important uh, goal for a lot of people, for most people, is to be consistent, to feel that their own beliefs are consistent. And the way that can help you is very early on, if you say, you ask, what are the important things here for employee reviews, and then ask a little later, what do you think I'm doing well or poorly? Then 
come review time instead of the manager having the out of being able to come up with something on the spot and justify, well, I really don't want to give anybody a raise. And so let me find a reason to not give this person a raise. They're going to be kind of trapped because they're already going to know that they have told you, uh, here are the things we value. And then I told, I told Ben, here are the problems that I think he has. And then, well, it's kind of gone. It looks like he he's doing the things that I said that I value, and he's cleared up the thing that I said was the big problem. Therefore, for me to be consistent with my own previously stated beliefs, I kind of have to give him some recognition. Yeah, I mean, you can kind of professionally paint them into a corner, right? Like use it's like corporate jujitsu. It's basically using their own rules, not against them, but in a way to sort of force the company to for you. Yeah, to acknowledge that like the rules you set up are there for a reason, at least in theory they should be. And so I'm going to kind of make sure that you follow your own rules by kind of giving you no reason not to. And I think that's that's can be very empowering for the employee. Right. And I think the big reason that people don't uh, set themselves up for that success, and certainly the reason that I have not set myself up for that kind of success, is tied back to imposter syndrome, the fear uh, that the the review is going to be, uh, you're doing everything wrong and we don't think you're doing anything particularly well and so go away. Right. Yeah, and, and we're not firing you, right. but like... And just don't don't talk to us anymore. Yeah. And that never happens. That will that will never happen. If it does, just leave immediately. I mean, that there's no need for that to happen. And if an employee is really like a royal screw up, then maybe they do deserve to be no longer employed at the company, right? Like, I mean, it like the, basically, if there's just cause, then that's one thing. But like it, anybody, hopefully, that's listening that really is serious about wanting to, you know, have a strong career and 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 do good things, is not going to approach their job that way. It's it's you're you're doing your best work, and 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 there's no reason for someone to just sort of summarily dismiss you like that. Right. We should um, mention the Dunning-Kruger effect at this point. Have you heard of this? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The idea that the, the people most prone to doubt their own competency tend to be at the upper ranges of that competency. And the people most prone to say, I don't really make mistakes, are the biggest screw-ups you're ever going to find. <laughs> right, right. The, yeah, kind of the more sort of blindly confident you are in your own ability and knowledge is an indicator that maybe you you don't because the thing about sort of um uh intelligence and knowledge and and wisdom is that usually the more wise and knowledgeable you get about something or about life the more you realize oh there's this mountain of stuff that i know nothing about right you 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 start to understand the enormity of your own ignorance um and so it helps keep you from getting too much of a big head about things. I had a graduate school advisor who compared uh, the knowledge you had in the world to uh, a light in the darkness and the light would illuminate a certain radius around you. And as your light grew bigger, you would illuminate more area, but you would also have a, a longer perimeter separating the edges of your knowledge from the darkness. And so the more yeah. you knew the more you saw that there was more that you didn't know just past the ranges of your knowledge. Right. There's this like halo right beyond where the light is that you're like, I see more things kind of. So I know they're there, but I don't. Yeah. It's, it's like actually the exact same feeling that I had when I went scuba diving at night for the first time, <laughs> because unlike, I mean, this is true anywhere, but like particularly underwater, you shine a flashlight out into the open ocean <sighs> and the light only carries so far. And then it just stops. Oh man. And so there's this like there's this sort of 
like curtain basically of water that is just beyond where you can oh, see. I am never doing that. And <laughs> and of course your brain like immediately starts thinking yes. of a giant shark just on the other a side lot of, of this them curtain of, with of dark water. Like wolf heads growing out of it probably. Yeah, and the minute I turn my flashlight around to look back at the coral I was looking at, they're gonna sneak oh, up behind me and eat yeah, me. Like no that question. <laughs> so yeah. To add, you know, as a callback to my previous example. Sure. And as a good example of something you don't have to worry about during job interviews and, and evaluations. Yeah. No sharks. Hopefully there aren't any sharks. No sharks. <laughs> well, I think that's a pretty good uh, discussion around the ideas of imposter syndrome. Hopefully this was helpful to some people out there um, in, in, in making them feel a little less... A little less scared by this by this thought. Less alone. Less alone. Know that everybody faces it. Yeah, and hopefully it, it's it's good to hear that that the two of us, as being you know, not to toot our own horns, but but to that that we've had we have some experience at, at building software and being developers, and even after that is the case, after that's now true, we still very regularly encounter these these little feelings will creep in and go, you know. Mm, you're not really good enough to do this, right? And you have to you have to recognize for it for what it is and understand that, like Brian just said, everyone feels that at one time or another. And and it is a lot less true than you think. I think is maybe kind of the good uh, boiling down of this idea is that is that don't let imposter syndrome have too much power over you because it is in fact a lot less powerful than it seems to be when it kind of creeps up on you it feels like this is the biggest problem and really it's it's pretty small and the best way i think to get away from it is to seek out people whose opinions you respect and to ask them how do you think i'm doing and that can be on the job that can be fellow hobbyists that can be instructors if you went through a program or even if you haven't you know seek out people in your community people are generally more willing to uh, to lend a hand in a critique than you might think and the critique is going to definitely be more positive than any critique you would give of yourself, yes. right? Because we tend to be our own worst critics, right? So the internal critique that you're giving yourself of your of your skill and whatever it is that you're doing is likely going to be probably pretty negative because that's just how humans tend to think about their own work. So so feel good about the fact that when you do go up into that person and you kind of are in this little scary scenario where like, I'm going to ask them for, for their opinion and they're going to give it to me, it's almost assuredly going to be demonstrably more positive than than the one that you were just giving yourself a minute ago at your desk. Right. All right, Ben, let's wrap up today's episode, but I'm sure people would like to know more about the show. So where can they go? What can they do? So the best place to go would be mvc.fm. That's our website where you can find all of the show notes and even listen even listen right on the page to every episode we've, we've posted so far. Um, you'll have links to everything we talked about. Uh, and also, if you could go to iTunes and give us a rating and review, we'd really appreciate that. And if you'd like to get, send us feedback, you can do so on Twitter at MVC Podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>